0: Welcome to IB Talk, the leading podcast
1: for the insurance industry across Australia, New Zealand, and throughout the Asia-Pacific region, brought to you by Insurance Business.
0: Hello and welcome back to IB Talk. I'm Danny Wood, News Editor of Insurance Business Australia. Today's guest is Chris McKinnon, Regional Head of Australia and New Zealand for Lloyds of London, based in Sydney. This puts him in charge of the iconic British insurance market in this part of the world. In March, Lloyds released its 2021 financial results and said they were the best for six years. Chris described those results as the culmination of a number of years of bloody hard work. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Danny. Good morning. Morning, morning. You have lots of hats. Lloyds is your main one, but you're an associate director with the Underwriting Agencies Council, UAC, and a non-executive director with the Insurance Council of Australia, the ICA. Can you just run us through what a day in your life looks like?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, interesting question, Danny, because it's it's probably the question I've been asked the most in the seven years that I've been at Lloyds, and, and that is, what do you actually do? um and and it's an interesting one because the answer changes every time i answer the question um because every day is different It, it is the proverbial box of chocolates forrest gump style so um i guess first and foremost My role um, is as the agent appointed by the Lloyds market to act as their general representative here in Australia. So the the primary function that I have and and what I focus on day to day is preserving and protecting the license of Lloyds trading rights in Australia and representing the interests of the market. So dealing with issues that arise, um, oversight of their distributors, all those kind of issues, Um, the, the agencies and council work is very much sort of aligned with representing the interests of our stakeholders in London. Uh, In fact, you missed one off my list of things that I do, and that is the New Zealand um, Underwriting Agencies Council as well. Oh, Don't want to miss out New Zealand. No, no, absolutely. So look, it's an important (laughs) um, stepping stone for us. We've got around 140 cover holders in Australia distributing Lloyd's products and about 35 in New Zealand. So it, it is an important market for us. So the UAC role is, is sort of sit as a non-exec, non-voting director on the board to, to represent the interests of um, you know, the Lloyds cover holders who are members of the UAC um, to help sort of promote and, and develop their business. Um, with the Insurance Council, obviously, Lloyds, in, in the aggregate, is effectively uh, the fifth largest insurer, using that term loosely, in Australia. So it's important that we get a seat at the, the, the ICA table to make sure that industry representation is consistent with our own interests. Um, a significant majority of times we, we follow the fortunes of the ICA, if you like, in terms of you know representation to government and lobbying on key issues that we're all aligned on. But obviously Lloyd's, being somewhat unique, we do have areas where sometimes our interests di- you know diverge from that of the general insurance sector. So I need to be there to kind of understand what the rationales are of the ICA approach and whether we support it or whether we need to go on our uh, on our own uh, in our own direction on that.
0: Mm, can, I, can I ask you a question well, on that? Because where do you where do you see um, some of the interests that you might have diverging or possibly diverging with a group like the ICA? I mean, where are the areas that you discuss most fervently, I suppose?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I, I think the reality is it's a, a lot of the regulatory reform we've seen come through since the, the Hainroll Commission. Um, the industry has obviously had certain views about, you know, working with Treasury or, or ASIC or APRA about um, – know, how those those pieces of legislation or regulation are going to be drafted, even things like the General Insurance Code of Practice. Now, Lloyd's doesn't naturally fit into a lot of that framework because, as you're probably well aware, we have our own section under the Insurance Act. Uh, which which sort of sets out a a slightly different and varied framework for Lloyds because of the unique nature of our capital providers. So, you know, in circumstances where an ICA approach on a particular piece of legislation will work for the significant majority of the industry, but would in effect preclude Lloyds from trading in Australia, then we need to actually seek um, exemptions from Treasury or from, uh, you know, the appropriate regulator to ensure that, you know, our interests and our trading position is not compromised here so that we can continue to provide the level of support we do. It's not in anyone's interest to, to, to regulate us out of the market because obviously there'll end up being uh, you know, further gaps and weaknesses within, uh, within the marketplace.
0: Do you ever get much pushback on your bid for exclusions or, or is it more or less accepted that Lloyd's is important enough that it deserves to have this quite distinct position in the market?
1: It's a little bit of both. I mean, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, governments come and go, regulators come and go, Lloyd's has kind of done things the same way for 335 years now. So um, we, we do tend to find that where there is a, a reform coming through and we have to to try and negotiate our position with um, a regulator or a government body, we, we often come up against um, people in that organisation who don't really have an understanding of Lloyd's because they've never had an exposure. So we do quite often have to sort of start at ground zero, if you like, and, and start building up their knowledge. You know, quite often we start with a little bit of reluctance to to look at any kind of variations. But I have to say, you know, some of the regulators that we work with closely mm-hmm. have been superbly supportive of us. So APRA, for example, we work very closely with. They understand Lloyd's inside out. They understand the importance of Lloyd's to the market. So where we might be having a, an issue in terms of Challenging a situation with, say, Treasury, APRA will quite often, you know, just stick up their hand and say, "Hey, guys, we we understand these people, and they're really important for the market, and they're very well regulated and structured. So let's let's work with them." So we, we've, you know, the last three years, um, four years now, post hane Royal Commission outcomes has been challenging, but we we're in a great position. We we think that we haven't had to compromise our trading rights in Australia at all. We've had to, you know, work really hard to maintain our own standards and make sure we are on a level playing field with the local market in terms of prudential standards versus Lloyd's minimum standards. But we're there. So, um, you know, the regulators are quite comfortable with us at the moment in terms of what we're doing. And I think we're uh, we're in a really good position for trading forward. Can I ask you to get
0: specific and give an example of, you know,
1: a piece of legislation where Lloyd's needed to sort
0: of be outside of it in order to continue existing as you as you do? I mean, presumably something like the the code of practice for brokers isn't something that you need to separate from? No, I mean, separate from, I mean if-
1: obviously, we're, we're not in the, in the um, you know, the broking space. So that's not so much of an issue for us. But um, technically, anybody that is in the business of making decisions around claims <laughs> has to have an AFSL now, right, for claims handling. So Within a Lloyd's infrastructure, the, the the ultimate decision makers are the members of Lloyd's, the capital providers, who could be an individual in Scotland, or it could be a corporation in Bermuda, who provide the capital. So, the practicalities of insisting that Scottish Lord, um, you know, has an AFSL for claims handling in Australia because he's putting up capital to back a syndicate that supports a cover holder that produces. Um, you know retail products in Australia. It doesn't make sense. So, so we were able to get a, a variation to that legislation specific to Lloyd's, whereby we've ensured an environment that all consumers with retail products in Australia would only ever get claim decisions coming to them through a locally appointed agent with an AFSL for claims handling. So whether that's a TPA or a cover holder here in Australia. But we, the, the actual capital providers, the decision makers, the, the claims managers within the syndicates in London are not required to get an AFSL. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty good example of, of why it was in the interest of everyone to ensure that we were able to get a special treatment on that.
0: Your other role that intrigued me, you're also general representative for Lloyd's in Australia, but also Vanuatu. How did a relatively
1: unknown Pacific island end up in your title? Yeah, it's um, the simple answer is geography, uh, actually. So um, Lloyd, Lloyd's manages and, and maintains around 200 licenses internationally in various territories, so across the US and obviously all around the world. And some of those licenses do require us through the local legislation to actually have a physical presence, such as Australia, where you know under under the Insurance Act we're required to have a uh, general representative resident in Australia to represent the interests of the market. So that, that's my role. And some of the licenses we have don't require that physical presence so um, new zealand is a good example and also vanuatu so generally whoever is the closest country manager to those regions would get the job of managing that license in any other territory so vanuatu is kind of pretty close and, and um, obviously a lot closer to us than anyone else um it's not always the case though actually i had a i had an interesting um debate with my my french counterpart in paris a chap called guy antoine and he and I were effectively fighting over the right to be responsible for looking after New Caledonia because we both quite fancied a trip there. Uh, he, oh, he, okay. uh, he kind of challenged me on the basis. He said, well, no, I should definitely look after it because it's a French territory and uh, it's a French-speaking country and I speak French. And I said to him, well, I'm 15,000 kilometers closer than you are and I speak French as well. So bad luck, Guy Antoine, I'm taking it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> And then Brexit happened, of course, and um, it's, uh, it's now off the table because we're not actually licensed there. So uh, Yeah but an interesting one. So yeah, look, it it just comes down to geography. So um, obviously being based in Sydney, Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific islands kind of makes sense. Mm. You mentioned Brexit.
0: Uh, Has that had an impact on how you operate much?
1: Not not for us locally. From the corporation, it has um, obviously very significantly. We've had to restructure and rebuild our European operations. Um, so we've set up a, an insurance company based in Brussels, which is obviously locally licensed and registered for European trading. So we just had to restructure the way we operate in Europe. So all of the business that we write in Europe is now effectively written, um, or European domicile risk is effectively written um, as an insurance placement into the Brussels-based Lloyds Insurance Company. And then behind the scenes, you know, um, you know, accounting transactions and reinsurance arrangements take place, so that the the business of the, the risk ends up back in in the Lloyd's market within the Lloyd's um, security framework, etc.
0: It's not really your hat because you're in Australia, but did did Lloyd's take a strong position on on the Brexit issue, or were you sort of just seeing how it played out?
1: Look, we were seeing how it played out. We we try and avoid getting involved in politics. We we were well prepared for it. We'd actually started prepping a a Brexit strategy. On the basis that it could go through some, I think, 12, 18 months prior to the vote happening. But I don't think there was any expectation that the uh, uh, the Brexit would actually happen. But when it did, we were actually ready to, to start moving. We've done a lot of prep work, as, as we tend to have to do with these things. How's COVID impacted you?
0: Are you working
1: remotely as we speak, or are you sort of back in Sydney? we've sort of adopted a hybrid model as as soon as the pandemic started the corporation of lloyds here in australia we've got a relatively small team we're only 13 people overseeing this region and everyone in that team is a specialist so that we we don't have a lot of um sort of young inexperienced up-and-comers we we tend to just employ people that can crack on with the job so the hybrid model has been fine for us we we, uh, a very strong unit we work very closely together we have regular catch-ups We do have an office in Sydney. So so Sydney's the the home base where we've actually been for our 25th anniversary in in Sydney next year, actually. But with that hybrid model out of the 13, we generally have seven or eight um, in the office three to four days a week. We've got one of our colleagues actually now living permanently on the Gold Coast and working from there. One's based in Perth. And this one on this call tries to spend as much time in the Hunter Valley as possible, which is where home is for me. Let's talk a bit about your family
0: ties to Lloyd's, because you were telling me that you go back quite a long way in terms of your connections there. Can you? Can we start with you know where you're from in the UK and and how this insurance link developed?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I uh, yes, I, I did grow up in the UK. I grew up in South Buckinghamshire, a place called Beaconsfield, which is about sort of forty miles northwest of London. Uh, went to the school in the UK. Found my way into the insurance industry. As you said, it's a I have a genetic disposition for insurance. My whole family has been in the industry for. I think well, six generations now, actually, because both my children are now in the industry in Sydney as well. So I, I sort of kind of grew up with insurance around the the you know the Sunday lunch table with the family. My brother and, and sister both ended up going into insurance. I followed them into it, fell in love with it as an industry. Just thoroughly enjoyed every aspect of the you know engagement with people and and um, you know the variety of the work you get to do and the activities you get to do is, is just very different from being just chained to a desk. So yeah, it's, um, I, I came out uh, to Australia on a one-year secondment in uh, about 1989 and never never went back for a, for a long period of time. So just um, Australia was a, somewhere I felt just much closer to, to to the business because you were closer to the risk. London, to me, was, was a lot of moving paper around and looking at sort of um, information about risks, but not really seeing or understanding the tangible exposures that you were actually working on. So I, I loved coming out to Australia and, and actually getting to go and see, you know, physical risks and going out to a copper mine out in Western New South Wales and. Um, you know crawling over a Russian submarine in Darling Harbour um, trying to arrange insurance for that so it just it, began, it became much more tangible no oligarchs yachts hopefully just the just the submarines. just the submarine that's yeah. <laughs> one of the, uh, the the leftovers from Glasnost and Perestroika all uh, sort of leased it and shipped it out here as an exhibit at the Maritime Museum
0: the six generations at Lloyd's that that's that's incredible that must almost take you back to I mean not quite but I mean how far how far does it go back and who who was the first relative who started this family trend?
1: Sure. So um, it, it, goes, it goes back to about 1870, which is roughly when the, the Lloyds Act came in. So it was actually right at the start of the sort of the, the modern day image of, that we see of Lloyds where it's incorporated as a society and, and has its own act of parliament, etc. So yeah, Benjamin Thomas MacKinnon was, uh, was underwriting in the 1870s. He retired in about 1904, I think. Um, so he was my great-great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, Norman, had his own insurance brokerage in Lloyds, so McKinnon and Company, that sold to Alexander Howden in 1911. So I had a good chat with David Howden about that the other day. And uh, Norman's brother, who is my great-great-uncle, uh, was uh, Sir Percy McKinnon, who was actually chairman of Lloyds five times through the 1920s and 30s. And he was the chairman of Lloyds at the time that they actually brought in the formalization of the central fund. So really kind of the the architect or the uh, uh, you know the instigator of the the chain of security at Lloyd's which I always find quite interesting um, and then Norman's why, why is that interesting Can I, why is that interesting to you well it was a, it was a definitive moment for Lloyd's where where we mutualized the society so that you know any policy written at Lloyd's shares the same level of protection and therefore that financial security that a lot of other insurers can't provide so even if a syndical syndicate a single syndicate falls over, uh, and runs out of funds. There is a central fund that is there for the benefit of all Lloyd's policyholders, um, and it's one of the unique propositions that the Lloyd's market has, you know, in the world of insurance. That we've never failed to pay a valid claim uh, through financial, uh, you know, resource issues because we're well capitalized with this central fund. Um, it actually got put in place because one of the um, – in, in the 1920s, I think it was, there was an underwriter called Stanley Harrison who'd, who'd run up a, a huge amount of debt on a motor credit-type deal that was all very new at the time because motor vehicles were quite new. And he ran up about a £300,000 debt, which he couldn't pay. And he, he went cap in the hand to the chairman of Lloyd's at the time, the, the Sir Percy's predecessor, who was Raymond Sturge. And um, he basically said to him, look, I've I cocked up and I can't pay these bills. Sorry. Um, and Raymond Sturge called the, the, the underwriting members of Lloyd's together and made a pretty strong statement that if the market didn't come together and satisfy Harrison's debts, then the market would never recover its reputation. So all of the underwriting members at Lloyd's at the time put their hand in their pocket and contributed to pay off Harrison's debts in proportion to how much premium they were writing. Um, and that was really kind of the the, 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 the reactive approach to um, you know, mutual exposures. And then four years, five years later, the, the central fund was formally instigated where every syndicate member would actually contribute a, a small percentage of the premiums they wrote into a central pot to prevent such issues happening in the future and be able to pay them off. So it was just quite a, quite a um, um, you know, definitive moment in time in the history of Lloyd's, I guess.
0: Mm, it's it's uh, It almost sounds like quite a, a socialist method from quite a capitalist organisation. <laughs> that's,
1: that's one way of looking at it, or, or uh, treating, <laughs> treat, treating customers fairly would be another way of looking at it.
0: It sounds like in the sort of environment you grew up in, did you ever consider doing anything other than insurance? Were you ever going to be a rebel and go off and do some punk rock and um, smoke a few things and be naughty or was it always a preordained
1: (laughs) path for you? Uh, Look, it's uh, (laughs) – I'd like to say it wasn't a preordained path, but I think it probably was in, in reality. I'm I don't I, I'm one of the few people, I think, that has never claimed to have fallen into insurance. I hate that expression. I think it, it's derogatory to our industry. I think that people should start actually stepping up and saying, you know what, it is a brilliant career. It's an extraordinary career path. You get to do extraordinary things and meet extraordinary people. Stop telling people you fell into it because then they think of it as an, uh, a career of last resort. Um, I, I did toy very briefly with the idea of being a pilot, but then, um, I worked out that I was actually pretty much blind in one eye. So that, that, uh, that wouldn't have been a good idea. So I, I, I guess, uh, having crossed that off the list, I thought, well, insurance has worked out pretty well for five generations of my family. Let me give it a go and, and, and see whether I enjoy it. And, um, 34 years later, I, uh, I still love it. So yeah, here I am. So what do you love about it most? Is it the, the day-to-day variety that you've described a bit? Yeah, look, it's I I love the fact that it is such a people business, and I, and I think we've all probably suffered a bit over the last couple of years with COVID that, that there's this sort of um, pent up frustration about people wanting to get out and about and see people, engage and have a coffee and just have a chat and do some deals face to face rather than the you know the, the email and uh, video calls which seems to have just dominated our lives for the last few years. You know, if you're an accountant, right, you sit there and you look at numbers all day every day. If you're in the insurance industry, you are looking at risk, but you're looking at physical risk, financial risk, intangible risk, marine risk. You know, you're, you're looking at natural disasters. You, you, you've just got a, such a broad spectrum of opportunity to really forge a career path and, and pursue a passion. So if you have any passion about anything in life, you can, you can pursue that through the insurance industry with a, with a professional career. How do you see the, the current challenges
0: facing the industry? When, when we spoke about Lloyd's results, you were pretty upbeat. They were the best results for six years. Yeah. Um, bloody hard work. Was, was what helped those results get where they got. But you've been in the industry a long time and there are some pretty critical issues facing everybody, unaffordable insurance in some sectors, the you know, the climate risks. Are these sort of the worst problems that the industry's had to face ever, would you say?
1: Um no, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think if we look back in time, there's always something, um, you know, something major that's going on um, at any given point in time in history, which at the time seems to be the most complicated and challenging thing uh, that's ever been. And, and I think, you know, one of the great things about the insurance industry is I, I like to say that our job is to solve, pre- solve problems that people don't yet know they've got. So we've, we've got to do this future gazing and think about these issues and come up with, you know, support mechanisms to help society and, and communities' transition. So what we're seeing now with flooding in eastern New South Wales and fires, I mean, you know, Dorothea McKellar was like a land of sweeping plains and flooding rains. Um, it, it, it's it's always been that way. It's just different because human intervention, I guess, in terms of creating more challenges emanating from climate risk, the fact that we've decided to build most of our properties in Australia within you know, 100 kilometres of the coast, which is eroding and causing problems, there will always be the next wave of problem. I, I think, right, quite frankly, at the moment, I think there are probably, from an industry perspective, there are less issues on the table now than they have been for the last few years. They're still really important and they're still really challenging. But, you know, the whole um, aftermath of the Hayne Commission um, has been extraordinarily challenging for the industry, and then add into that some of the worst natural catastrophes over the last few years that we've we've ever seen. But you know, we're through a lot of that—not necessarily the cats, but we're through a lot of the the, the regulatory and, and legislative reform, and industries sort of prepared now to move forward. And we're all pulling in the same direction in terms of being a consumer centric industry. So I think that's all fantastic. I guess the industry issues that I I think we're seeing at the moment—you know—adapting to hybrid working models, and particularly. How we attract and train and mentor new talent coming into the industry, I think, is a real problem. Most of my generation learned through osmosis, right? You turn up at the job and you sit next to somebody and you follow them around and you you, you learn from them. But how do you do that when you're at the end of a video screen? So I think we, we're going to have a, a real challenge on our hands in terms of making sure that that next generation, you know, we, we don't lose a generation's worth, worth of knowledge and experience. That's, that's, I guess, the key issue there. The second thing in terms of industry is a major challenge at the moment is we need to work... Really closely with government, whichever one that may be, to simplify what is a massively overcomplicated legislative and regulatory environment um, that has sort of been brought into effect by overlapping and, and overlinking legislation and, and changes over the last few years. But at the same time, then preserving the intent of, a, of this consumer-centric industry I talked about. So, I guess from a from a bigger picture, global challenges we're looking at. Obviously, you mentioned climate change, natural disaster management. Um, our reputation as an industry, I think, is a constant challenge because, you know, nobody will ever publish a good news story about the insurance industry, certainly not on primetime television. So how do we change the rhetoric? How do we change, you know, the perception of the good that, that the insurance industry does in the community and helping rebuild, you know, from post-disaster? Cyber and geopolitical challenges at the moment, obviously very front and center of everyone's minds you know, that's just an ongoing challenge and an issue which is just going to get exacerbated. I think the final thing that for me is the biggest challenge is actually just reconnecting as a global industry and a network after two years in isolation. I think that, you know, we've lost talent. So I think it's really important for us as an industry that we reconnect and, and, and get back engaged with the global insurance community.
0: Chris, it's quite hard summarising the issues facing the industry, but I think you did a very good job <laughs> there in, in, a, in a few minutes. Thanks, thanks very much for joining us on IB Talk. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Chris is Regional Head of Australia and New Zealand for Lloyds of London, based in Sydney. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts.